the Ortho PAC, hosted by Sam Dyer. Welcome to the Ortho PAC, where we discuss up-to-date orthopedic topics for the busy clinician. I invite you to sit back and relax as I attempt to fill in the gaps between education, current events, and real-world practice. Welcome back, listeners. Tessa is a PA student at Northeastern University who comes on our podcast today as a second of our two scholarship winners for 2022. For those of you that aren't aware of our scholarship program, the PAOS has been awarding student scholarships since our inception. It's called the Susan Lindahl Memorial Scholarship Program, and it started off as one $500 scholarship a year, and we've grown it over the years to two $5,000 scholarships. Tessa, welcome to our podcast. Thanks for having me. Yeah, so we wanted to chat a little bit about your research and case study you presented to our scholarship committee, which was very good, by the way. So what got you interested in orthopedics and even more specifically in meniscal implants? Yeah, so it was a little bit of being in the right place at the right time. I was working as a medical assistant at an orthopedic office, which happened to be a clinical site for an FDA-approved medial meniscal implant trial. And so the surgeon that I was working closely with, he was the PI, and he offered me the position of clinical research coordinator. And it was really through this position that I learned about the gap in care between meniscus resections and arthroplasty for symptomatic patients. And, you know, the patients with the implants were doing really well, and at the same time, they were avoiding arthroplasty. So, you know, since the menisci are complex structures and, you know, their treatment can be challenging for patients and providers alike, I found this research to be really exciting and I wanted to be involved with it. Well, that gives us the background on how you came about the study. Can you tell us a little bit about meniscal function? When we talk about anatomy, what does it do and how does it protect the bony cartilage in the knee joint? The menisci function to absorb shock and distribute axial loads and provide stability in the knee. So when a person steps down, for example, the meniscus absorbs the stress and it dissipates the force across the joint. So they're really critical in the prevention of articular cartilage degeneration. And we see this highlighted after a resection. So if we look at this from a biomechanical standpoint, the contact pressures of the articular cartilage are increased and knee mechanics are going to be altered after a resection. So in the meniscus deficient knee, for example, especially in the setting of varus alignment, it's going to displace the weight bearing axis medially and it's going to concentrate the stresses to that medial compartment. And as a result, it's going to lead to progressive degenerative changes, pain, malalignment, decreased function that we see with these patients. Let's talk about your case study in the paper. You know what? I think what might be a fun thing to do is How about if you present your case to our listeners, tell us the background on the patient, surgeries and follow-up data, that kind of thing. So the patient was a 40-year-old male and he was working as a heavy machinery operator. He presented to our office with bilateral knee pain, left greater than right, and it was all isolated to the medial compartments. And his pain was really worsened when he was weight-bearing or when he was, you know, working, interfering with his job, really. So his left knee was status post two medial meniscectomies essentially subtotal at this point, and the right knee had a posterior horn and body tear of the medial meniscus. So he was enrolled in this multi-centered FDA-approved Venus clinical trial, and he was randomized to the implant group for the left knee. So the right knee received conservative treatment options, so this included things like weight loss, strengthening, interarticular injections, and a medial unloader brace. So we followed this patient per study protocol with 
MRIs, x-rays. We included long leg alignment series as well. And then we also used functional and pain surveys. And the patient did really well postoperatively. In one week, he had improvement in function and full range of motion. However, three years down the road, the left knee was still doing well, but the right knee, we really started to see some deterioration and he had pain, positive meniscal pathology findings, as well as joint space narrowing and varus alignment. So conservative treatment had really failed in this patient. And so he underwent a partial medial meniscectomy. As expected, his mechanical symptoms, that catching, locking, improved postoperatively, but he still had that persistent medial compartment pain. So now, unfortunately, he's in the process of scheduling a right knee medial unit compartmental arthroplasty. And so what we saw with this case specifically was that the implant prevented articular cartilage contact in the knee, and it preserved the joint space. But retrospectively, when we looked at all of these long leg alignment films, was that we saw preservation of lower extremity mechanical access. So this was really interesting. The patient's left knee went from having a mildly varus alignment of 3.6 degrees to 1.2. In contrast, the right knee, the one that was conservatively treated and then needed a meniscectomy, that had an increase in varus alignment and joint space narrowing. That's pretty fascinating that an implant corrected the varus alignment somewhat. You know, I can remember my mentor telling me that the teaching was when someone had a meniscus tear, you just went in and cut it out. And it didn't do anything. So lots have changed since then. I don't really promote industry products on the podcast. I don't have any financial disclosures. I really wish I did have financial disclosures, but I don't. But the implant you described in your study was functioning well at six years post-op and actually had corrected that varus alignment somewhat. Can you tell us a little bit about that? The implant is called New Surface, and that's spelled N-U Surface. It's owned by Active Implants. They have filed for FDA regulatory approval in the U.S., but it's not yet approved. But the implant is made from a medical-grade plastic, and because of its design, it's really unique in that it doesn't require fixation. So that's pretty cool. But in this case specifically, the implant is definitely functioning well. It's doing a great job, as we've seen in prior studies, mimicking the normal meniscus. But specifically in this patient, you know, he has full range of motion, function. He's really happy with the implant. In fact, um, six years out, it's really his right knee that he's focused on. It's one that's limiting him and it's causing him pain. Very fascinating. Very interesting. The last meniscal kind of implants that I've seen, other than the allografts, it was like this metal disc that went in and the things dislocated and yeah. it was just a nightmare. They, they didn't last very long, I don't think, but that's been a while ago. I've seen those before. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure in research, you probably saw some of that. I think we covered most of the things in your paper. Did we miss anything or anything you'd like to share with our listeners? I'd like to encourage pre-PAs and current students, practicing providers even, to get involved with research. I think the PA profession definitely has a role to play in this, and um, whether it's innovation and improving care to our patients. And just a quick thank you to Dr. Brian McKeon and Jason Rand for their guidance and involving me in this patient's care. Tessa, I wanted to tell you thanks again for coming on the podcast. And once again, congratulations, one of our two student scholarship winners this year. Thanks, Sam. Looking forward to it. If you're in Denver with us right now, please check out our poster projects, not only our scholarship winners, but also our research projects from other PAs. Stay tuned the week after the conference for part two of our skeletal traction interview with John Kodoski.